Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. A guy sees a sign in front of a house that says, Talking Dog for Sale. He rings the doorbell and the owner tells him the dog is in the backyard. So the guy goes back into the backyard and sees a black mutt just sitting there. Guy walks up to the dog, he says, you talk? Yep, the mutt says back. So what's your story? Well, the mutt looks up at him and says, well, I discovered my gift of talking pretty young and I wanted to help the government. So I told the CIA about my gift. And in no time they had me jetting from country to country sitting in rooms with spies and world leaders because no one figured a dog would be listening in. No one figured a dog would be eavesdropping. I was one of their most valuable spies for eight years running. But the jetting around from country to country really tired me out and I knew I wasn't getting any younger and I wanted to settle down. So I signed up for a job at the airport to do some undercover security work mostly wandering around suspicious characters and just kind of listening in. I uncovered some incredible dealings there and was awarded a bunch of medals. I had a wife, I had a mess of puppies, and now I'm just retired. Well, the guy looking at the dog is simply amazed by this. He goes back in and asks the owner what he wants for the dog, and the owner says, $10, that's it. Well, the guy responds to him. He says, this dog is amazing. Why on earth are you selling him so cheap? And the owner replies, well, he's a big liar. He didn't do any of that stuff. You can't believe a word that he says. Well, as you come to the 15th chapter of Acts, you may have a tough time believing the words that are before us. Because Barnabas and Paul got into a very heated discussion about John Mark. Still in Antioch, after the council in Jerusalem, it started out innocent enough in verse 36. Notice, then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. As you watch the direction of God unfold in the lives of these people in this text, notice the human aspect. Verse 35 already taught us that they labored there, preaching and teaching the word of the Lord. Paul and Barnabas served faithfully in Antioch until the time was right. Serve God where you are until God himself moves you along. These guys, they didn't sit idle. They didn't sit doing nothing, waiting for a sign. We don't read of Paul laying out a fleece that if the Lord would send a man with a horse or a boat or something like that, then Paul would take it as some sign that God wanted him to go. They served Christ where they could, and then when the time was right, they made the decision to move on. 
Make your focus in life living a Christ-centered life, centered on living according to the wisdom of his word right where he has you right now. You know, some of us, we get in the habit, we like to dream big of what God could do. What God could do, but we miss out what he's looking for us to do right here, right now. Now, I'm sure that Paul prayed about it, and we'll see in a minute that Paul took counsel with other men, and we'll see in a few minutes that Paul did follow the clear leading of the Holy Spirit when there was direction from the Lord, but Paul also understood Paul did not get caught up in worrying about next week, next month, next year, because his focus was on Christ. His focus was on the present, the here and now. His focus was on holding up others in the faith. You see, too often when our concern is on next week, when our concern is on next month, it's because our focus is really on ourselves. Isn't that right? We get worried about the future instead of being focused on living to serve others. And with Paul, the focus was on helping the people of God through the work of God. Now, it's not wrong to plan for the future. In fact, the scripture speaks to this. And it's not wrong to seek direction from the Lord, but it is wrong. It is absolutely wrong to make our constant focus on ourselves. And it is wrong to sit and idle and do nothing for the Lord. I don't even think here in Acts that Paul made plans to launch a second missionary journey. We read of no mention of Paul planning to push further west with the gospel of Christ. I think his heart, his heart burned. He had that passion to know how his fellow believers were doing. Paul's plan was to follow up with the new believers in Christ. And as this passage unfolds, the Lord directs him to continue west with the gospel. Paul understood his position in Christ. Paul understood his calling. Paul understood the work that needed to be done. Now, it's very possible that Paul and Barnabas might have spent the winter months in Antioch. And I don't get the impression from reading the book of Acts that much grass was growing underneath their feet. Paul now raises the issue of the need to go back to the churches that had already been established to build up the believers in their understanding of Christ and in their understanding of the word of God. But notice that his plan was to visit every city where they had preached the word of the Lord. So here it comes. Verse 37 raises the issue of John Mark. Look at the text with me. It says, now when Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Now this is taking us back a little bit in time. This takes us all the way back to chapter 13 where John Mark headed back to Jerusalem. And Luke, he doesn't polish over this. He doesn't cover over things. He doesn't hold back. Luke records that Paul had a major problem with the thought of taking John Mark. And the reason he had the problem is because, listen, it was his view that John Mark had deserted them and had not continued on with the work of the Lord during the first mission trip. Remind yourself that there was some family relations here, wasn't there? John, Mark, and Barnabas were cousins. Remind yourself of the differences, the very inherent differences in the people involved that Luke records between Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas, time after time, is seen as the encourager. Who's Paul? 
Well, he's the one that's so bold in his faith, he gets stoned because of his boldness with the gospel of Christ. John Mark had left the group when they landed at Perga. It was a stronghold for pirates in Pamphylia. And the mountain passes were infested with bandits. Do you blame him? He really was a little worried about his safety. The summer heat in that region was oppressive, hot and humid. Paul might have come down with malaria during that time. They were chased out of two towns. Paul had been stoned and left for death, worshipped as a god one day, and then condemned as a heretic the very next. You see, Paul knew that survival and the successful work of the gospel required a strong, united team. And they were headed back into the lion's den to the same cities that they had been in before. Now, this is actually the second disagreement that we see between Paul and Barnabas. Paul had already confronted Barnabas in Galatians 2 for getting caught up and caving in to the pressure to withdraw from eating with the Gentiles. Paul was saying that the mission was too important to risk on undependable people. But what was Barnabas saying? Barnabas was saying that the mission was all about redeeming people after failure. And the wording in these verses, it gives us a picture that both men, Paul and Barnabas, they kept repeating their positions over and over and over. They kept insisting that they were right. They wouldn't drop it. They wouldn't let go of this issue. Neither man would back down, and it led to a sharp disagreement. I think all that we have here in Acts is that Barnabas wanted to give John Mark a second chance. You know, many men over the years would have dropped out of the ministry if there wasn't a Barnabas in their life, willing to give them another chance after they have failed. But Paul had learned the hard way of how tough missions can be and the persecution that you can face. Paul needed someone in his life that he could count on when the going got tough. Ministry is difficult, too important, too demanding to have someone with you that may quit when you need them the most. Both men were right. Do you see that in the text? Both men were right. And Paul, he owed more to Barnabas than to any other man in the church. Barnabas was leaving one of the greatest ambassadors for Jesus Christ that this world has ever known. But these close, close, intimate friends, they parted ways. And you see, that is the tragedy of unresolved conflict. Even when both sides are right, both sides Lose. Verse 39. It records that the contention was so sharp, so pointed between them that they separated and they went their own ways. Now, of course, this was not the end of the story for John Mark. About 10 years go by, and we read of him being with Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5. We also read in Colossians 4 and the book of Philemon that eventually John Mark was reconciled to Paul and became a part of Paul's missions team. And in the end, towards the end of his life, we read in 2 Timothy 4 that Paul asked Timothy to bring with him who? John Mark, because he was profitable to him for the ministry. So we know the end of the story, that eventually they did reconcile, and they ministered together once again. But think about how God used this situation in the book of Acts. Notice what we read starting at the end of verse 39. It says, And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. 
and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. A guy by the name of Paul Borthwick, he wrote about a young man he knew by the name of Peter. Now, Paul had stopped in his local McDonald's in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and he noticed Peter was working at the counter. Now, Paul knew this young man from their young adult ministry at church. Paul knew that he had just graduated from Harvard University with a master's degree. Peter was able to take a break, so they had coffee together. And the first question out of the gate, right away, the very first question that Paul asked him was, what are you doing here? I mean, he had a master's degree. He asked this because he knows that people who graduate from Harvard with a master's degree usually don't end up working the counter at McDonald's. Peter's answer, well, here's what happened. I graduated in May, but I went four months without finding a job. So I said to myself, I need some income. I need some money to pay my bills. So this is where I ended up, at least for now. Well, Paul started in with his response. He said, I'm so sorry to hear that. It must be hard. And at that point, Peter cut him off. He says, no, do not be sorry for me. God has me here. This place is giving me an awesome opportunity to share my faith. I'm on a shift that includes a guy, a Buddhist guy from Sri Lanka, a Muslim fellow from Lebanon, a Hindu lady from India, and a fellow Christian from El Salvador. It's awesome. I get to be a global missionary to my coworkers while asking, would you like fries with that? Well, Peter found himself in a setting he never would have chosen as part of his long-term plan. But his mindset, listen, his mindset of living as a sent person shaped the way that he looked at the circumstances and at the people around him. I see this same thing happening in Acts 15. I mean, this is not what Paul expected. And this is not what Barnabas had planned. These two close, intimate friends parting ways. But they did. They parted ways. And listen, it was not about theology. It was just a disagreement. Hard feelings, maybe, but we read of no sin. Listen, here's a principle. Good men with even the same theology can disagree on ministry. And God, he took this situation and he made something good come out of it. He likes to do that, doesn't he? Because God is able to overrule our disagreements to accomplish his will. Sometimes when there is a disagreement, it's just better to work separately because good people can disagree. Now, you may not like it, but disagreement, it's part of life together, working together in the church of Christ. It really is. Get used to it. If you want to obey the scriptures and be a part of the church, you better get used to disagreement. If God had to depend on perfect people to accomplish his work, he'd never get anything done. God changes his workmen, but God, his work, it continues to go right on. Now there were two mission groups, and you can see that represented on the map here. Mark and Barnabas heading down to Cyprus. These two mission groups, they changed the world. Paul and Silas, they headed north by foot, probably sharing the letter from the elders and the apostles at Jerusalem as they went. 
Now remember, Silas was from the church of Jerusalem. He would confirm the message of the council. He was a helpful guy to have around. He was a Roman citizen, and he knew the Greek language. So here they go. The second missionary journey of Paul has now begun. Verse 1 of chapter 16, it teaches us that Paul and Silas continued to Derby and Lystra, where they came into contact with Timothy. Notice from the wording that Timothy was already a disciple at this point. Timothy likely became a follower of Jesus Christ when Paul had first shared the gospel there. We know that Paul would later write that Timothy's mother Eunice was a Hebrew woman of great, great faith. She had trained up Timothy in the scriptures as a child, but all the evidence we have suggests that his father was not a believer. Skip down to verse 2 for just a second. Notice this with me. Luke added that Timothy was well spoken of by the Christians that were at Lystra and Iconium, meaning people didn't have to be told that Timothy was a Christian. That's nice to be around Christians like that, isn't it? Lystra was only 20 miles or so from Iconium, so we can imagine that the Christians in these two cities would have had this close relationship between churches. But before we head back to verse 1, take a look at verse 3. I find this to be an amazing verse in the Word of God. Read it with me. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Let's track this very, very closely here in the Word of God with what's happening. In verse 1, Luke records that Timothy's mother was a Jew who believed, but his father was a Greek. Kind of makes you wonder at this point why this was recorded by Luke. Then you get down to verse 3, and you see that Paul circumcised Timothy after everything we had just read in Acts chapter 15, that the gospel of Christ does not include circumcision or the keeping of the laws of Moses. And then you turn a page in your Bible, and Paul is circumcising Timothy. Why? Well, let's think about the issue in chapter 15. Who in particular were the Judaizers telling that they needed to be circumcised? It wasn't the Jewish Christians. It was Gentile Christians that had never been circumcised. Paul was willing to die for the principle that circumcision had nothing to do with salvation. Paul was willing to die for the truth that Gentiles should not be put under the yoke of the Mosaic law. The issue that was settled in chapter 15 was that Gentile Christians would not have to become circumcised to be a part of the body of Christ. But at the same time, Jews were not required, to hear me on this, Jews were not required to abandon circumcision in order to become Christians. There's absolutely no evidence anywhere in the Word of God that Paul ever asked Jews to abandon circumcision as their mark of membership in God's covenant people. So now let's think about this and how it relates to Timothy. The marriage of a Jewish woman to a Gentile man was actually, according to the Hebrew people, considered to be an illegal marriage. But in this case, because the mother was a Jew and the father was not, any child born to her should have taken on her religion instead of that of the father. So in other words, what I'm telling you is the custom was that a child born of a Jewish mother and a Greek father was considered to the Hebrew people as Jewish. 
Timothy would have been considered a Jew. His father, being a Greek, would not have had him circumcised, but he should have had him as an outward sign of the Abrahamic covenant had him circumcised. And in verse 3, Luke makes it clear that of all the Jews in the area, they knew of this situation. You see, Timothy had a reputation. Everyone knew who he was, the son of a Gentile. And you remember that when Paul came to a new town, he always started first with the Jews in the synagogues, if possible. And to have a member of his group be of Jewish descent, but not be circumcised, this would have handicapped his efforts. It would have damaged his efforts to share the gospel of Christ with his Jewish brethren. The very core of the issue is out of their love for the Jews, Timothy and Paul, they came to the conclusion that they could be more effective for Christ if Timothy was circumcised. Paul would write of his mindset to the church of Corinth in his first letter when he said in chapter 9, he said, For though I am free of all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews to those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. You see, Timothy had a reputation as being the son of a Gentile, but among the brethren, Timothy had a better reputation, didn't he? He had a better reputation among them. To be circumcised in an adult, that was a painful experience. You see, it cost Timothy something if he wanted to go with Paul. It cost him something if he wanted to minister in the name of Christ. Ministry, it means that you're willing to sacrifice. Serving others costs you something. You cannot live for yourself and be committed to serving the way God intends at the same time. They do not go hand in hand. You can't do it. But God would use Timothy. He would be involved with Paul when six of the New Testament epistles were written, with two more epistles being directly written to him. Paul called him a son, a fellow worker, for Christ. And in Acts chapter 16, we now have three men traveling down the road, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Verse 4, it teaches us that they went through the cities. They delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem. And Luke then tells us in verse 5 that the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Let me tell you about a town known as Gander, Canada. It had a population of 9,600 people, smack dab in the middle of Newfoundland, Canada's easternmost providence along the Atlantic. It's not a big place. It had a community center, it had four city parks, just an average town for most of history. That is, until September the 11th, 2001, because on that day, 52 transatlantic flights were redirected to Gander International Airport. Well, most passengers spent the night on their planes, and the next morning, a convoy of buses took the passengers to the terminal because their flights would not be redirected for another two days. So the towns, they started to, they didn't have anything to do with these people. They didn't have all these hotels and places to put them. So they started to open up the schools, the churches, any place that they could put them to house all these people. Some had cots, some had mats, some had sleeping bags and pillows. Elderly people were given no choice. They were 
forced to stay in private homes. Families were kept together. High school students, you'll love this, they were let out of schools, given the opportunity to volunteer to help all these people that had invaded their town. During the day, they actually took the passengers on boat trips, little day excursions. Bakeries started making fresh goods. The people of the city, they had one big potluck meal. They kept bringing food, making food. Tokens were given to laundry mats. One flight attendant actually put it this way. She said, passengers were crying while telling their stories. It was absolutely incredible. When passengers came on board after their stay in Gander, it was like they were on a cruise. Now, why do I tell you this? Listen, because some people in a faraway place were kind to some strangers when they happened to drop in on them. And that is what we are about to see in our text coming up here now in Philippi. But first, God had to direct their steps. God had to get them there, directing them where to drop in. Notice this in verse 6. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they had, were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. This is an interesting text for a lot of historical reasons. Going on to Asia would have made, from a human point of view, perfect sense. There were highways that had been made linking all the colonies together, about 12 feet wide, heavily traveled, very safe. You could reach a lot of people by heading down these roads, but God had other plans. The Roman province of Asia was over by Ephesus. They probably ended up in Pisidian Antioch and tried to go into Asia, but were forced to go way to the north. And the next two verses, they tell us they tried to go into Bithynia. They came down to Troas, again blocked by the Spirit of God. They probably wanted to head to Bithynia because in that region there was several large cities with decent populations. You see, they tried to preach the Word of God in Asia, but that didn't work out. They tried to head to Bithynia, but that didn't work out. Now this can be frustrating, can't it? Trying to accomplish something for Christ but being blocked by the Spirit of God. It had to be confusing because if they would have gone north, there was large cities there. Large cities. But instead, they found themselves, according to verse 8, going through the backwoods country of Myasia, over to the coast and down to Troas. You see, two doors were closed, but they didn't quit. They kept trying until the Lord made their path clear. It's easy to mess this up in our own lives, to recognize that God is sovereign, but then we miss his sovereignty. We miss his sovereign hand when he guides us. You see, we tend to wonder at times what we did wrong when a door closes. Or maybe we sometimes play the victim, comparing ourselves to other people when doors seem to open for them, wondering why nothing ever seems to work out for us. Sometimes we try harder when the Lord has forbidden or give up and go home when a few doors shut. Paul and Silas, they did none of that. They understood that God has every right to open and close opportunities, to give and take away, never doubting the kindness of our God. Here's where I think part of our problem is, is that when one door closes, we sit and we stare at that closed door for so long, we miss the door that God has actually opened for us. Now, Troas was roughly 30 miles to the south of the ancient city of Troy. 
Troas was a port city, an impressive city, another great place for sharing Christ. But God, he kept pushing them west. Why? You see, the sovereign hand of God was directing them, and it would steer, listen, the course of church history for thousands of years. The gospel wasn't expanding north. The gospel was not expanding east, down to China or Asia. The gospel was pushing west. God was directing them west. These events here in Acts 16 ended up shaping western civilization. First to Europe, then to the entire western hemisphere. Everywhere Paul went, he saw a need for the gospel everywhere he went. And Paul would have stayed and stopped and talked and shared the gospel. And Europe would have never been evangelized in his lifetime if it had not been for the direct intervention of the Holy Spirit. You see, guided by God, Paul was at the right place at the right time to go into Macedonia. Now, verse 9, it tells us that Paul received a vision in the night of a man in Macedonia begging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. This vision was probably in a dream, but again, God was directing his steps. In verse 10, Paul now realized the other doors for sharing the gospel had been blocked. Take a look at what it says. It says, now after he had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. The vision was God's way of directing them. Notice something else. For the first time, Luke uses the term we, saying here, we endeavored to go into Macedonia. The missionary group, it was growing. They were picking up people as they went down the road. Now it was Paul. Now it was Silas. Now it was Timothy and Dr. Luke. Paul, Luke, they joined up in Troas, but Luke seems to have lived in Philippi. Recognizing that the Lord had called for them to preach the gospel to the people of Macedonia, they set sail for Troas. Now, Philippi itself was the leading city of Macedonia. And in order to reach Philippi, they would first sail to a place called Neapolis. This is what Luke tells us here in verses 11 and 12. And the weather, we know, must have been very good. And the winds must have been going their way because they were able to make it halfway to Neapolis after just one day. Just to give you an idea, in Acts 20, the trip from Philippi to Troas, it took five days. Five days. So for them to make it in two days in Acts 16, you know you're making some headway. You know you're making some time. Samothrace was the halfway mark. They didn't like to travel at night. So what they would do is they would try to get to the halfway mark. It was an island made up of mountains that rise as much as 5,000 feet above the sea level. Now, the Greeks, you might have heard of this, the Greeks called this island Poseidon's Island. Because in their view of things, the Greek god of water and earthquakes and horses stood atop the highest mountain overlooking the plains of Troy. The next day, they arrived in Neapolis. It would have been about a 10-mile hike to Philippi down the main highway, running through the land. This is precisely where God wanted them. This is where God dropped them into Macedonia. And the reception they had there opened the doors for the gospel and forever changed the world. Philippi was not the capital of the district, but it was the leading city of that part of Macedonia. 
But there was no synagogue there. There had to be at least 10 Jewish males, you remember, in a town in order to have one. And it seems that they couldn't muster up that many. Only women gathered for prayer. Prayer meetings haven't changed much in the last 2,000 years. So instead of heading to the synagogue, they headed to the place of prayer outside the city by a river. Notice verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. The river being referred to was a little over a mile away from the city. And when they didn't have a synagogue, this is what they would do. The Jews would just simply meet out in the open, close to a body of water. They knew this. That way they knew other believers would find them. It was a railing spot. It was a place to meet up. And in the synagogue, a speaker, you remember, would sit down to teach. Paul, what did he do? He sat down by the river to teach, and he spoke to the women there. But one person stood out. Notice what Luke tells us. He says, now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Lydia from Thyatira, the home of the purple dyes, Thyatira was right in the Roman province of Asia. Thyatira was the place that the Spirit of God had blocked Paul from going. I find that ironic. Lydia dealt in goods that had been dyed purple. It tells us that Lydia, she had some money. In fact, she didn't just have some money. This, this woman was wealthy. She had a lot of money. Because there was two basic methods back in that day for making purple dyes, for producing these expensive, expensive purple dyes. One was to extract the color from the glands of shellfish. The dye was made from a juice found in small quantities in these shellfish. And it took enormous amounts of them to make a yard or two of purple cloth. The other method that was used, was used in Lydia's town, was to extract the dye from the juice of a matter root. And it would be an understatement to say that having purple clothing was a symbol of status or a symbol of wealth. It was like walking around in designer clothes. Lydia would have been selling purple cloth, purple garments. She had to be extremely wealthy just to be able to afford the products that she was selling, just to have the inventory. Purple wasn't just an indicator of wealth, it was a symbol of political power in that day. Amongst the Roman senators, the more important you were, the more of the color purple that you would actually wear, the more you would actually have on. And only the Roman emperor himself would have clothing made entirely of purple cloth. Purple was the color of the Roman elite. Personally, I think they could have picked a better color. In verse 15, we will learn that Lydia invited the men to stay in her home. She was a woman of substance. She would have had the room to take them in. She probably even had the servants to take care of them. And the text makes it clear that she was from Thyatira. She easily could have had a home there and in Philippi. Now, watch verse 14. It tells us that Lydia worshipped God. She was a devout Gentile who believed in God. Not a full convert to the Jewish faith, but she believed in their God. There was a pretty solid Jewish community in the city of Thyatira. This is probably where she first learned of the God of the Jews. In a lot of ways, Lydia reminds me of Cornelius back in chapter 10. She was a woman who was already worshiping the Lord, but she simply had not yet heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Notice what it says in verse 14. It says she heard them. Lydia heard Paul and his group teaching the gospel of Christ. But what does it also say? It says that the Lord opened her heart, meaning God gave Lydia the comprehension of the significance of the message. Do you hear me on that? And she responded to the words that Paul spoke. She responded to the gospel of Christ. So she was baptized along with her household. The book of Acts is always consistent on this, that baptism comes after faith. In this case, Lydia led those of her household to saving faith in Christ, and then she led them into the waters of baptism. The first converts to the Christian faith in Europe, right here in Acts chapter 16. But take a look at what she said to Paul in this group. If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. You know, when they landed at Philippi, they found the hospitality of Lydia. She begged them, literally is what we're reading here. She begged them. She was eager to serve the Lord. This was one persuasive woman. It was almost like she was saying, come and see for yourself if the Lord has truly come into my life. The commitment level she had, it demonstrated for everyone that she was a believer. And later on in verse 40, we will learn that Lydia didn't stop there. She didn't stop there. She allowed her home to be the gathering place for the Christians in Philippi. But what I love so much about this passage before us is that 20 years after Pentecost, hundreds of miles from Jerusalem, the gospel of Jesus Christ continued to go forward with Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy sitting quietly on the banks of a river sharing the message of redemption in Christ. And from this little, tiny, small gathering, the church at Philippi was born. Dawson Trotman, some of you may know the name, he was an evangelist that touched the lives of many people back in the 40s and the 50s. And in June of 1956, Dawson climbed back into a motorboat one day after two hours of water skiing at Scroon Lake, New York. You ever had one of those days, Grayson, where you're just dog-tired? Well, he was dog-tired at this point. And he settled down and he asked one of the two girls in the boat if she could swim. When she shook her head no, he traded places with her so that she would be in a safer spot. Well, minutes later, the speeding boat, it bounced on a wave. And if you've ever been in a motorboat, you know how that can happen. You hit a big wave and it can kind of throw you a little bit. Well, it did. It threw both of them. They shot right up into the air and into the water. Well, he swam to her as quick as he could and he held her head above the water until the boat could actually circle back and she was hauled on board. But as the hands reached down to seize Trotman's hand, he sank. He sank below the depths of the water. He sank out of sight. Dawson died by drowning as he saved the life of another in the throes of death. A few weeks later, Time Magazine actually wrote about these things back in that day. Time Magazine wrote about this, and it wrote about his death. And the capture under his picture in the article, it appropriately summed up his life as it read always holding someone up. And the article aptly concluded with the words, he lived to save others. You see, his life and death emulated the mind of Christ as expressed in Philippians 2. You remember that passage where it says of Christ, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus lived and died to save others. He calls for his people to live with this same attitude. The expression of great love is where one lays down his life for another. Jesus proved this and more. 
True love is expressed in not allowing others to sink into the miry pit of sin and death, but holding them up so that they can be reconciled with God, sharing Christ with the souls that are set before us. And holding up others in the faith, encouraging them to press on, to finish the race set before us, to keep the faith, and to live as a testimony of God's amazing grace. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.